Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim and Chris on today's Australian Open final catch-up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Sabalenka secures her first major. Djokovic wins title number 10. And Sinyakova and Kujikova defend their doubles title. Chris, today is the 29th of January and we are here to catch up on the Australian Open Finals at Tennis Weekly HQ. We have our male and female singles champions, Novak Djokovic and Arena Sabalenka. Some cracking finals. We've got the doubles as well to talk about. And I'm also going to be revealing our collect a set winner. Unfortunately, Kim is not able to join us today so it's just me and Chris at HQ but what I've really enjoyed Chris is you have dressed up for the occasion I've dressed up for finals day haven't I Joel but um (laughs) the real reason not to not to break the illusion real reason I thought that was the real reason yes and then you are very underdressed for this occasion but um (laughs) the real reason why I'm wearing a tie a suit I'm still wearing my suit jacket it's because it was um, my grandfather's 90th birthday today. So oh, we're wow. recording a little bit late, but I'm sure we can excuse that because when you get to 90, you have to make some allowances, don't you? Yeah, no, absolutely fair play. And it's actually given me time to digest all the results and also momentally prepare myself for the fact that there's also tennis starting tomorrow. I mean, Katie Bolter's on court in Hua Hin. We've got Leon. I'm already nervous about Gabi Yamuguruza's got Linda Noskova in the first round. So it's 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 given me that time to that added preparation time. You're jumping ahead, Joel. We haven't even covered the finals yet. And you're already, your head's in Thailand at a WTA 250. Exactly. I mean, where else, where else it could stops, it be? Never stops, never stops, does else it, Joel? It never be, stops but... on the tour. <laughs> but yes, we have the men's final to talk about. First of all, we're going to be talking about the ladies' final after our break. But yes, Novak Djokovic is your, well, he is a 10-time Australian Open singles champion. He defeated Stefanos Tsitsipas today, straight sets, two tie breaks, 6-3-7-6-7-6. It was a final that, you know, I think both players gave really good account of themselves. I actually enjoyed the fact that there was no real talk about, you know, whether Djokovic was, was fully fit or not. It just felt like both players went out on court, tried to deliver their best tennis And unfortunately for Stefanos Tsitsipas, when that usually happens, Novak Djokovic comes out on top. I mean, that's what happens, isn't it? That's what we've learned, that no matter what the odds are, whatever we might predict, don't bet against Novak Djokovic, especially at the Australian Open. I mean, whatever context we talk about and we see all the commentators speak about, potentially there's a chance. I gave Tsitsipas the edge when asked for a prediction. I thought I was looking good midway through that second set for a, a Djokovic four-set victory when, yeah, Sissipas had set point. Yes, set point. There's only break point, I think, in um, that set. 
um, turned out to be a set point. And then he got a break up at the start of the third. I thought maybe his belief is still there. Um, but I think we've learned that, uh, I mean, it's Djokovic can... The first set and the first couple of sets are a great indicator as to whether he's mm. going to do it. And when it came to two sets to love up, I think you, you put on the group that there's only one player that's done it mm. who's come back from that situation. I know, great stat. I, I didn't realise this, but the only player to have defeated Novak Djokovic from two sets down in a grand slam, I'm sure our listeners are shouting out right now, Jürgen Meltzer. What a day. What a blast from the past. But um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was obviously going to be a very, very tall order the, the more it went on. And actually, to be honest, I was actually impressed with how much Stefanos Tsitsipas you know, stuck to the, the job at hand and didn't really kind of falter. And he really, you know, made Djokovic, um, you know, work to the very end. Even in that tie break, you know, Djokovic, I think was what, five love up in, in the third set tie break. And Sissipas really did claw it back and, and actually made it more interesting than I think a lot of people, including myself, thinking, you know, this was just going to be a, you know, seven one seven two 2 um, job. But um, yeah, I mean, how did, how did you feel like it, it started, um, you know, for, for Djokovic and Sissipas? Because in terms of kind of tactics, what did you feel like Djokovic was doing that, you know, was able to eventually get him to his 10th Australian Open title against Sissipas? I think the first set was almost the perfect example of what the difference is between the two players. Djokovic is able to serve with pinpoint accuracy and with real purpose. And he was targeting that backhand, which has kind of been probably the biggest weakness in the Sitsipas game, the fact that he does tend to not hit through the backhand. He had a lot of slices, a lot, lot of blocks, and he hasn't been doing that as much in the tournament. And today, I mean, I think it was 94% of first serve points won for Djokovic. And the big difference was that Djokovic was landing his first serves. He was landing them in a great, uh, great position. He was putting himself in a great position in the point. Um, and Sitsipas, his first serve percentage was too low. I think it was somewhere around 60%. He wasn't winning as many of them as obviously he was kind of in the rest of the tournament because you're playing against one of the greatest returners the game has ever seen. And it kind of just exemplified the difference between them. Um, and it showed kind of the, the weakness in Sitsipas' game. He's got a fantastic forehand. When he's in the rally, he can do really well. But it's those clutch moments and that, that uh, second, well, that return of serve on his backhand that I think really did um, cost him that early break and then was the difference kind of ongoing. I think even in those clutch moments in, in later sets, it's... Um, it's kind of a bit of an ongoing issue, that one. Yeah, that. I mean, yeah, it was interesting because that first set, it just felt like the Djokovic service games were impenetrable. Sissipas was just a, a bystander, really. And in double quick time, he was back on his own serve. And it really was, um, you know, not, I think, where it needed to be. I think he was under 60% um, first serves in. And um, yeah, it sort of put him on the back foot, obviously against one of the you know greatest returners <laughs> of, of all time. But I think you know, you know, we we put that first set aside and we go into the the second set. It did get a little bit scrappier. I don't know if Djokovic got a little bit tenser, but it felt like Sissipas was holding a lot more comfortably, and he was coming into the match a bit more. And I think for me, that's if we look back on the match, that second set really was. I think the you know it was the turning point because as you said Sissipas did have a set point and if he had taken that and you know made it more scrappier and a bit more of a battle and a bit more of a shootout then you know who knows what would have happened but you know we saw that Djokovic just yeah, he played that point very very well great forehand up the line but yeah I was impressed with how Sissipas had 
you know, was able to kind of put the first set disappointment behind him and he upped his levels, I think, certainly in that second set. He did lift his game and the numbers support that. There was actually only one point between them for that entire set. And Djokovic had no break points in that entire set and Sitsipas only had the one on set points. So it could have gone either way. His, his numbers improved significantly. The first set, it was 60% of first serves in. Second set, 68. Djokovic actually dropped to 66. So... Uh, it was one where he was serving a lot better. He was backing up his second serve much better and starting to get into the match. But if you give someone even the tiniest window or you don't take that opportunity and a slightly passive break point, I think he kind of needs to realise that it's much better to go after it in those moments, I think. And that's kind of the thing that you see from him. He can get a little bit passive at the moments when real champions, and not saying he can't be a real champion, but when the champions we see play some of their best tennis and front foot tennis and take the destiny into their own hands, which felt like, I don't know, is this fair, Joel? He shied away a little bit on that on that point. Mm. To me, it was quite tentative. And it was almost like it came, snuck up on him this moment. And he was like, oh, what do I, you know, oh, what do I do? And um, I think, you know, that is the thing we've seen, I think, with, you know, Novak Djokovic's matches, particularly, I think, in, you know, for example, against, you know, against Tommy Paul in that, in that first set when Djokovic's level does drop, you need to make the most of that moment Tommy Paul wasn't able you know wasn't able to do that and Stefanos wasn't Sissipas, able to play his game he said right mm. I think that's one of the interviews the clips that went around on social media which is kind of the meme of what it's like to play against Novak Djokovic and Tommy mm. Paul said my game plan was to serve and come in and serve and volley to get myself to the net and he said I don't think I did it once and so I think maybe that's something where I'm, I could be being slightly too harsh on Sitsipas in the sense that Sitsipas did play his game on that court yeah, just restricted by how good Djokovic was. Because, yeah, like sim- similar to Paul, I mean, I was expecting Sissipas to rush the net a, li- a little bit more in that match than ultimately the num- the numbers showed. And I think that was due to the, you know, the weight of shot from, from Djokovic, you know, his heavy forehand coming back. It just really sort of restricted, I think, Sissipas to the back of the court. And there were no real short balls I think for him for him to come in on and um, I think that really took away a potential uh, you know edge um, in the game in sort of not getting into those kind of long and extended rallies but yeah just that consistency from Djokovic at the back of the court it was just you know it was frightening at times I think because he wasn't afraid I think to hit into the into Sissipas's his big shot the forehand but as soon as that happened you know he was then able then to go to the backhand and you know when Sissipas is on the move trying to hit that backhand as you said it can be it can be a bit of a weakness for him. Yeah, and we talked ahead of the the final about whether he'd give Medvedev a call and find out what it was, mm. um, what it was that worked for him against Djokovic in that U.S. Open final. And, and what was interesting was that Stefanos was playing very far behind the baseline for him. I think it was a bit further back than I've seen him so far this tournament. So, what I do like is that he was trying to do something a bit different, give himself a bit more time, so he wasn't as rushed on the ball. Maybe be able to do a bit more with the shot um, if he had that extra time um, but I would have liked if that hasn't wasn't necessarily working as well I think it would have been interesting to see as you say like he so he did come in a bit more in that second set it was six from nine at the net but again Djokovic is so, so strong from all areas and so great at passing shots and it's almost hard to know and so what you should be doing when you've got good numbers you're playing quite near the top of your level and it's a point here or there as to whether you might get a set but um it was a, it was a solid fine effort margins. and you can see that he it's fine margins and he did he was definitely able to impose his game um at times he was able to play his game that we know he can play 
But the problem is, is Djokovic can just play a game that's better. Mm. And I think that was kind of what happened today. Yeah, I do. I, I do wonder sometimes if we talk and overanalyze these types of matchups. And the reality is that Novak Djokovic's level it's is just higher good. than Stefanos Tsitsipas's level. Yeah. And... I mean, how do you kind of rank this this Australian Open for Djokovic? Had, do you think it has been a case of, you know, the fact that we obviously don't have the likes of Roger Federer, um, you know, Rafa Nadal was also a little bit injured. Is he well and truly above everyone else in, in the field? And he showed it over the last two weeks. Ah, it's hard to argue with that. It really is. Mm. In um, best of five, I think. In best of five, absolutely. I think even in best of three, um, he is showing that, especially kind of at the end of the year, picking up end of season finals and then not dropping a set except for in that second round, which was a bit of a surprise set. And then he won the rest of the sets with the loss of just three games. So I think I actually read, sorry, he, I think since Wimbledon last year, I think he's won six of the seven tournaments he has entered. So it is amazing to think, you know, the levels he has brought given the stop start nature, um, you know, of, of his season last year. I mean, he's, he's, he, he, you know, he said that he would say that this is the biggest victory of my life considering the circumstances. I mean, would you agree with that same statement? I, I think it's probably, I guess it's to do with the degree of the injury uh, and mm. the way that he was able to, to do it here. And emphatic style from, well, really from the third round on. Um, I think I have to, you have to take him for his word on that and believe that because I saw an interview with Goran Ivanisevic who was saying just how bad it was, how close he was to pulling out, how touch and go it was. And I think it's very hard to know what goes on behind the scenes. I think we've seen that, you know, when Serena was playing, uh, I think it was in the year that she almost was able to achieve um, the Grand Slam and then kind of falling short in the semifinals of the US Open. But she was sick, sick for a lot of that season. And, and on the documentary behind the scenes, you saw that she was not just a little bit of a cold. She was unwell. But then if you looked at her performance on the court, she was able to really bring it out of, uh, bring her level up and play yeah, like absolutely. she wasn't sick. And so I think... Physical injuries are different to kind of a, something that's autoimmune potentially or something that's more immune system based. Um, I do think he did look like he was in pain at certain times, but I don't think necessarily that the the way that he improved led me to believe that the injury could be as severe. Um, so I think for him, it sounds like the experience was very much that he did not think this would be possible. But from an outside perspective, we can only go on what we see really. And it, and it looked like it was Djokovic at the top of his game. And I actually wonder, like, did that leg injury or whatever we want to call it, did that actually help him? Because I think you raised uh, you raised it on, a, on an earlier episode. And I think Goran Ivanisevic talked about it was the fact that he was going bigger on his forehand mm. because he wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't as certain about getting embroiled in really long extended rallies from the baseline. And... For me, that has been one of the shots that has really propelled him to the, you know, to the trophy has has been how, not just how accurate his, his forehand be, has been, but the, the, the power that he gets behind it. But at the same time, it just doesn't feel like a risky shot. It feels very, very safe, but it just is very, very awkward um, for all the opponents he's come up against. They've just come, I feel, completely unstuck by it. I think they're potentially a bit surprised by... The fact that he has gone for a bit more at times. I think there's something that's been a bit interesting seeing some of the players um, where maybe they'd have thought they'd have had a few more longer points. He is actually winning an awful lot of the points when they are shorter. Um, 
And I think, as you say, that's definitely a tactic. Um, in kind of the zero to three shots, he definitely was pulling through against Sitsipas, against all of his opponents. And I think it comes down to the fact that his serve has been a massive help throughout the tournament, especially if you are struggling moving out to that forehand side, which you could see he visibly was. He was not comfortable going that way. And I think in order to kind of prevent the fact he gets, if he were to get pulled out to that forehand, he is hitting a bit bigger to try and prevent that from happening and kind of preventing the injury from getting worse. And maybe that was the difference in terms of Mm. buying that time for recovery, less time on court. Um, And then I think it's enabled him to, to play, um, well, to play himself into the tournament by not um, exhausting himself or kind of further uh, aggravating an injury. I do quite like the aggressive Djokovic. I think it's something which it's always a fine balance when you watch tennis players play in terms of how aggressive do or should you be? How aggressive do you need to be? And I think um, the backhand we always know is absolutely devastating. But I think seeing the forehand and how many winners he's been hitting off that, I think... We'd all have said that maybe he had probably the best backhand on the tour. And then you look at it and you think, well, does he have the best forehand and maybe one of the best serves, which are things that you wouldn't normally have said. You just The whole game you would have said was better. So I think he's actually just shown even more strength and even more sort of like uh, feathers in his cap. Because I think it's, um, again, we do t- use the phrase scary. His movement, his fore- forehand, his backhand, his volleying, there just isn't a weakness there. And I think... Maybe, as you said, it's he's just a bit too good. And he is now on 22 Grand Slam titles, equal with Rafael Nadal. Next Grand Slam is the French Open. Even Isovic said he's lo- looking forward to like the battle. He hopes they're going to both be super healthy in his words. What does this result mean in terms of all-time number of Grand Slam titles, the fact that they're equal, the fact that Rafa, there's going to be, there's more question marks over Rafa, obviously, than Djokovic at the moment, who's got all the momentum. But at the same time, we are now going to be going from Novak Djokovic's backyard, Rod Laver Arena, to Philip Chatrier, which is <laughs> Rafa Nadal's second home. I think Djokovic on clay has always been something that I haven't quite understood because it should be as good a surface as kind of some of the other surfaces out there. I think it's always been a bit confusing to me, some of the losses he's had um, on clay and some of the slightly earlier rounds he's lost in Paris. So so I think it'll be interesting to see if he is able to kind of have a really good clay season. Um, Again, I think the point you've made around where does this stand in terms of the greatest of all time debate, I think we have to be a bit of a realist here. Um, And I think there are different, different goats for different situations. I think... What each one has achieved individually is phenomenal for different reasons. Um, I think Nadal's, well, Nadal last year was one of the ultimate comeback stories of all time. I think that was exceptional, almost impossible to be believed, um, especially given some of the physical ailments he had at the time. I think with Djokovic, the Grand Slam number is definitely lower at this stage because of the fact he wasn't competing in tournaments last year. Um, and Grand Slams last year where based on the form book he would have picked up two more Grand Slams so I think we have to kind of take that 22 and we expect it to get higher and it would have been higher and I think that lends itself to the fact that Djokovic is now the world number one again Um, and it kind of we talk about that in the sense that Alcaraz's time as number one obviously he's been unable to play the Australian Open and, and compete on the tour for a while now but seeing Djokovic play like this and seeing the results he's put together since he has kind of uh, 
rejoined the tour, there was no doubt in my mind he would have won the US Open short of disqualification and that Alcaraz wouldn't be a slam champion at this stage. So it is a, it is a strange one when you look at it because it's felt like for a while that if Djokovic is playing tennis, he is the world number one in the back end yeah. of last year. Yeah, I agree. In the terms of the, the tennis on the court. No, no, I agree. It's it, Yeah, as, as you said, the, the now that Novak Djokovic is the official world number one it does feel right and it does feel like he is now the you know he still was before but he's got the i think the the ranking to back it up like the the ultimate boss um if if you will i mean just on carlos alcaraz yeah there was a nice message um he put on his social media to congratulate um to congratulate Djokovic. what how would you sum up alcaraz's time at, at number one um, you know, uh, you know, I expect him to reach you know back at the top. Um, you know, at some some point in in the future. But how would you just quickly kind of sum up? Yeah, Alcaraz's his time there before Djokovic has taken over. He's definitely shown everyone that you can um, achieve at a younger age than I think the the people were saying. People said you had to grow into your body, grow into your physicality, and that things were different now. And I think so. The fact that he has done that at such a young age and shown composure in such um, kind of intense circumstances and come through and and won a Grand Slam title, I think beating the, the best of the rest, I think is still very impressive. Um, and many players who have been around the tour longer haven't done that. So I think he's been the story that tennis needed, but it's just a shame that that happened in a circumstance where we have a little bit of an asterisk around some of those results. But he has beaten both Djokovic and Nadal uh, in the last uh, last year when they were fit. So he's definitely well worthy of kind of a top two ranking. My question would be with Nadal winning the first two slams of the year and then, um, you know, making it to the semifinals at Wimbledon before he had to pull out those two slam wins, I think from the ranking system side of things should put him above someone with one slam. But he, obviously Alcaraz played an awful lot more. So really, I think it probably... <laughs> Should never have happened, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny the you know the story you know it's a it's it's a great story and it was I think you're right a story An amazing incredible yeah a story that that tennis needed and it's 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 funny because you know before we kind of go to a, a quick break I mean how would you assess how the men's tournament has gone overall because I feel like we were robbed of things that would take interest of the casual spectator's eye specifically in the men's tournament i was reading earlier today about how tv viewing figures um in in australia particularly have not been very good uh, to quote have fallen off a cliff apparently and you know you think about the fact well world number one carlos alcaraz not there nick kyrgios a big draw whether you love him or hate him also you know not there rafa going out early as well novak djokovic of course very kind of polarizing figure i mean how would you kind of describe and put this men's tournament given you know what we've seen from from Djokovic has it been a boring tournament would you say or do you think it's been exceptional given the historic achievement we've just witnessed I think when you have a tournament where the expected result happens and almost in an even more emphatic style than people thought that's obviously not as interesting a story to follow as you know if Nick Kyrgios was putting an upset against Djokovic if that match happened or if there was never that big story of the tournament beyond if Djokovic is if Djokovic is fit, will he win it? If he's not fit, yeah. you know, there's it's, it's that, was literally the, that was literally the the every day I think of the first week, especially that was the question, wasn't it? That was the headline, and then 
if we're not talking about that, we're talking about his family. And then if we're talking about this, we're lots of eye rolling about yeah. last year. And mm. it's, you know, so I think from the men's side, I think it's the Sitzbass story. We've got another maybe story. And mm. obviously the, the number 10, I think it's kind of the significance of 10 is lost on a lot of people because it's almost more of the same. And I think people got a bit like that with some of the Williams sisters at times that when they were winning so many things people got a bit tired of that in some yeah. ways which i think so, oh just makes wait it sometimes... and tune in till the final or something yeah and it's at, at the time i think we don't necessarily always appreciate just how incredible something is when we're watching it and this is obviously incredible and um and i think it is something to be celebrated but uh i think it didn't quite have the fireworks this, this men's tournament as an andy murray fan i think you know again a lot of people talking about well match maybe match of the the men's tournament was Andy Murray versus Tanasi Kokinakis. And just generally, I think Andy Murray's run in the tournament was perhaps, you know, up there in terms of one of the, the big stories. But yeah, I think there was a question of were there that many more stories beyond that, beyond the, the Novak Djokovic story, which for some people probably got old quite quickly. And yeah, it's an incredible achievement. But hearing that over the course of two weeks, yeah, you maybe would have liked to hear a few more stories. Or a challenge, a challenge, Joel, don't you think? Someone take him to five or... Exactly. Well, I, I, will, I will say this, and perhaps we should end on this. Um, I, I can see in tennis pub quizzes in the future a question of who was the only person to take a set off Novak Djokovic at the 2023 Australian Open? And do you know the answer? I do know the answer, but I'm going to give you the pleasure of saying it because I'm not name. sure I will I know. know how to. Chris, that's not how it works. The, the way it works is you tell me the answer so I don't have to say it. Okay. <laughs> I, Kuka, Kukod. Yeah. Enzo I thought it was Kukod. Quacko. 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 Kim, wherever you are. Yeah, Kim. SOS Kim. SOS Kim. But yes, exactly. Exactly. So he's got, I think he's got a nice little story to go home with. But that cheeky set he took in round two. Exactly. So yeah, on that note, we're going to take a quick break now, but join us in the second half where we're going to be looking at the ladies' singles final. So do not go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we are going to move on to the Lady Singles Final, Arena Sabalenka, breaking her slam duck in Melbourne, defeating Rabakina in three sets. Really high quality, entertaining match. 4-6, 6-3, 6-4. Sabalenka now 11-0 for the season. 
and 22-1 in sets. It was a fantastic spectacle. And yeah, Chris, what did you make of this? Because Sabalenka, for me, it's all been about, it's all been like in her head in terms of, can she keep her emotions in check? If she can, she has got the game to win a Grand Slam. And in Australia, she's proven it. Yeah, undoubtedly she has the game. And I think we've seen that the demons were very much present last year, much talked about, queen of the double faults. And so I think it's it's one where it shows that if you're able to kind of fix what's going on between the ears, you're able to to take what's kind of not necessarily always been a positive situation for her. And I think people are very pleased and she's elated with the fact that she's sort of kind of been able to live up to sort of the uh, um, unbearable weight of great talent because she has one of the biggest games and it's almost the level of her play on a great day is such that she shouldn't be losing to many people at all. But I think she's had a situation where she hasn't always kind of had a plan B. She hasn't always had a a backup option and she hasn't always been able to keep her emotions in check and not in an emotional sort of way, but I mean more in terms of the frustrations and uh, when things don't go right, I think she's very heart on her sleeve. And at times that's something that's really beneficial, but also at times we've seen that be the detriment to her and things have got away from her or have unraveled. So I think seeing this Sabalenka... I think everyone and kind of the universal tennis community seems to be very pleased that she had kind of a challenge in this final and she was able to, when she double faulted on the first match point, I think I thought, oh my goodness, don't let this be the end of the yeah, Sabalenka story. Yeah, I did wonder that because it was a real, that final game, wasn't it? I mean, there were opportunities there for, for Rabakina to, to get back in it. Yes, it was very tight. It was very... Um, it's what you expect, I think, from a player who, regardless of who it is, who hasn't won a you know grand slam before and you know has had this pressure on them for the last few years and and when you get to that moment of trying to serve it out yeah of course naturally it's going to be really really difficult so difficult i think um she didn't realize how hard it would be to get over that line and you know we could do all the hard work in the world and they've kind of talked about how much hard work she's done but that that final point, I think people don't realise how hard it is. And she must just be willing for her opponent to, to make a mistake because she really had to work for it, especially in that final game. Yeah, I think, you know, it is one of those, like, you know, like Sissipas, it's, it's not just going to be handed to you on a plate. You have to go out and earn it and earn it, Sabalenka did. I think it's interesting earlier, you talked about plan A versus plan B, because I, I would still say Sabalenka doesn't have a plan B. It's just that, her plan A has become more consistent and she's actually been able to string plan A together across like the whole two weeks of a Grand Slam. Do you feel like that's fair or do you or do you genuinely think that like there is a different you know change up that, that Sabalenka can have? Because I looked at this match and for example, you know, in the in the first set, she wasn't going for her her first serves and her second serves. And I think she yielded five double faults in that first set. But there, there wasn't really a moment when I thought, oh, yeah, she's going to maybe take a bit off and, and play it a bit more safe. I just don't think that's the that's the mentality of Sabalanka. She is just full throttle. And, you know, it seems to be working very, very well at the moment. And arguably before, yeah, it worked for X amount of time up to a, a quarterfinal. But it just sort of fell away, you know, at, at that point. But now she's shown that she can put it together across the whole two weeks. I think it comes from the belief in your game in those key moments. So 
you're probably right in terms of I, when you look at the game, it does look like it's always plan A. But I think, as you say, there have been changes that have been made. So she's got more shape. She's got mar- more margin. Fine tuning. Yeah, you don't have to hit the cover of the ball every point. And I think it's also an acceptance that you will miss at times. And I think rather than let that be kind of a feeling that might take over you at that time, I think it's also known that you're going to make more than you'll miss. And Kvitova talks about this, that part of being a player that hits big, you do make more mistakes than a player that doesn't go for it. Um and I think when it kind of has rained, it's kind of poured for, for Sabalenka in some of those matches. And I think what's particularly interesting is that she's able to now, um, with her game, ride out those storms. So maybe it's not a case that uh, the plan B is, um, I think when we went from plan A to plan Z almost, I think previously, and now it's more of a case that plan A will come back as in it will work. But I think sometimes you can't be perfect and perfect tennis doesn't exist. And I think maybe... It's kind of an acceptance in that area and having a serve that works, that has got to be the, the most comforting thing to her because when you don't, you have to work so hard for every point. Like when she was doing underarm serves last year and then still kind of get making it past <laughs> things with Rebecca Peterson in that match. And I was watching that and I thought that is, she's got the determination, she's got everything. She's even going to roll in a serve if it means she can get through this match. And I think that's um testament to her that, that now she's got that comfort that she's able to kind of almost not put the pressure on her other shots as much um, because she knows she can get some free points. Yeah, I mean, she was quoted as saying, I think during these two weeks, I really was super calm on court and I really believed in myself a lot that my game will give me a lot of opportunities uh, in each game to win this title. And it is almost that sort of... So I true. Feel like, yeah, like, I think it's like, you know, before, you know, she'd hit like a really bad unforced error and it would really kind of rattle her and and throw off her game but I think now I see that extra level of of calmness where it's like if that did happen or maybe she serves a double fault she's got that inner monologue that actually says don't worry you know it's don't be calm be cool don't worry just move on to the next point and I think it's that level of yeah that that maybe that little slight little tweak or you know that little answer back maybe to those errors that she was making that is all she really maybe needed to you know help her just sort of stay focused and stay zoned in Mm. yeah it it does feel like that and for example that's a great point when she's been love 30 down in this tournament it hasn't felt like she's panicked i think she has exactly what she said there that she knows that her game will give her opportunities to win each game. And when she was down 15-40, when she had break points at different times to, uh, against her serve, I think she really has sort of been been telling herself that. So I think it's something that's really kind of impressive to see that she's able, able to do that because she described herself as previously being a bit of a tiger on the court, you know? And I think now she said that the tiger's still there, but I think it's... Um, Maybe more of a, not necessarily a pussycat, but it, it's something that allows her to have I, a bit I'm, more I of am a, envisaging like a, a Zen tiger now, like a like a Buddha or something. So it's a little bit more chilled, yeah, a little bit yeah, more relaxed. I can see that. Like it's, um, or has, exactly, some sungla- like yeah, it, has some sunglasses on or something. Um. Yeah, I think that's kind of her vibe, right? I think she's, um, she's a cool cat, that's for sure. And um, she, she defeated current Wimbledon champion Elena Rabakina um, in in the final, and you know she is a player who is great. You know me, we, me and Kim were thinking she actually had the edge, even though I think the slight favourite on the on the win predictor in the in the TV coverage with, was with Sabalenka. I mean, what will Rabakina take from this? Will she be disappointed the fact that? She was a setup, you know, in, in a Grand Slam final and, and wasn't able to get it done because, 
she has been there and done that. As I said, she is the Wimbledon champion. So I wondered if that experience was was going to count for more than the defeat that you know it's ended up being for her. I don't necessarily think that there's much neg- there's not m- that much negative to take from this defeat for her. I think she competed right until the end. She gave herself opportunities. And it was almost a bit of a, a chess game or a cat and mouse game. Why, we're using a lot of cat um, cat <laughs> metaphors here. Mm. But it's very much a case where they were they were both bringing out a good level in each other. They were both challenging each other in different ways. And there were some key battles that were taking place on the court. And on the day, she just didn't necessarily have the answers to it. I think her serve was a real issue for her. It really did let her down in terms of having such a great weapon that wasn't able to be produced enough. Her first serve percentage was too low. Um, and that was definitely a big issue. I think the other battle that was kind of taking place on court was the the forehand battle of the serve. And I think that's what I think was smart about Sabalenka's game plan was that she knew if she put in a fast ball on a second serve and a fast ball on a first serve to Rabakina's forehand, she would get kind of enough points off that. And if, Sab- if Rabakina started to make more of those um, shots then that would be the difference. And I think if you looked at the, the match and where it was won and lost, I think it was the forehand of Rebecca and I think it was uh, very much a case that if the serve for her had worked, um, I think this could have been a different result. And it was it was so close. Um, but again, it's like in those moments, you know, sometimes your serve doesn't do it for you. And she did elevate other aspects of her game. But I think it's more for her in terms of moving forward I see this as a big kind of positive step from where she was kind of coming off of Wimbledon. Is she finally going to make show courts at her events coming up? That's that's what I want to know. In Thailand, I'm joking, but she's not playing. But <laughs> I think she should make show courts everywhere. I think yeah. it's the tennis that people want to see. I think... I feel like she's such an elegant player on court. She's very, like, her, um, her game Serene, is very yeah. easy on the eye. It's very technically sound. Fluid fluid exact i mean and 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 you know some there'll be some people out there and say she also doesn't shriek uh, or is as loud as, as someone like a sabalenka on a it court it was really I, annoying i know at i mean times. Where, where do you i, I don't want to get into a debate on like grunting because i feel like it's just been around for forever and it's obviously not a new thing with sabalenka but what do you what what did you make of it because there is that uh, you know there's a, there is that contrast i think we spoke about rebecca being that sort of silent kind of assassin but i'm almost thinking sabalenka's the screeching assassin yeah i think they are quite interesting because they have got relatively similar games in mm. lots of ways but they have a very different approach to how they go about it and that was part of the debate from last pod that we talked about who is the bigger hitter and it does feel like because of the noise and the effort and the she's expression of sabalenka yeah that she's really letting rip in a way that you feel like maybe if there was a little bit more energy coming mm. from Rebecca, that maybe it would add that extra, a bit more oomph, even more oomph to her shot. And her coach talks about that, that he always tries to energize her, try and get more energy from her. And he's, and she says that she really looks to him for that because naturally she's quite a get on with it type where she doesn't necessarily express that much. She's unfussy. Yeah, she is. She kind of just gets on with it, which I think is um, a great aspect. And that's kind of the, an I think it's a that, great example, asset that fans yeah. also, any fan can, I think can really relate to that. Just a player who just yeah gets on with, what they've got to do on a tennis court. Yeah, and doesn't kind of over-celebrate things. She's never going to be one of those players who at two all in the third set is kind of putting her hands up, waving to the crowd saying, give me more cheer. She doesn't think like that. And I think it's a combination. But I think when you 
if you look at their their skill sets, maybe if Sabalenka had a little bit more of the Rabakina sort of mindset, she might have already had some Grand Slam titles by now because Rabakina has shown that with a big game and a relatively similar game, you're able to to win a major at, at a younger age. So it's interesting. And I think it, that made for a particularly interesting final because of the fact that there was this contrast between the two of them. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And I think, I, I know, I, I swear all the, yeah, the best matchups, they're always these sorts of contrasts. And when they've got similar games, it just makes it, I think, even more compelling. Um, Rabakina is now into the top 10 of the women's rankings. We've got Sabalenka at a career high, number two, Sviantec, number one, Jabor, Pagula, Garcia, Goff, Zachary, Kasatkina, Bencic. I mean, this is a very... I think high quality top 10. I mean, John McEnroe suggested it's been, this is the, you know, this is potentially the strongest top 10 we've had in women's tennis for a number of years in terms of Grand Slam winning potential. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you, do you look at that list and think, oh, this sets up the French Open really, really well because yeah, I know Igor Schwantek's playing great, great game and she loves it. She loves a, a, a clay court, but are you are you excited by how like the the chasing pack and how they're they're performing as we've seen with with two of them get to the the final at the Australian Open? You know what I'm thinking like a Netflix producer now, Joel. It's Breakpoint season two. Just follow the top ten women. Well, everyone's going after Eager. That's that's the narrative and the characters we have. We've got the big hitter who's just won her first major. We've got Ons who's still trying to do it for mm-hmm. be the first in so many different ways, breaking down barriers there. We've got the resurgence of Caroline Garcia. We've got the young gun, Coco Goff. Um, we've got kind of the the villain of the story, if we had to have You've one. You've already sold it to me. Bencic. I just think it's going to be um, a really interesting year because I I would love to see a series of players who are competing and do have these rivalries because that match was a great match. And obviously, kind of some of the matches between Sabalenka and Iga haven't been very close recently. Um, Rubikina has kind of had the better of Iga a few times now. And I think we just want to see some great tennis and where we had that sort of phase where the same players were reached the semifinals and the level was super high when it was like Sharapova, Azarenka, Serena. They were kind of Kerber. These players were facing off. And Wozniacki. At the time. And Wozniacki, like it was a bit of consistency. So I would love to see this season a bit more consistency from, from everybody. Um who's in that top 10 to kind of really mm. show that they, they aren't just there because everyone else is kind of all of there or thereabouts. But I think it's going to be an interesting year. And I think when you look at our predictions um, for the years, who's going to be world number one, I was going to ask you, Joel, do you still think based on this performance that Ego will still have that like you like you thought at the start of the year? I, I still think so. Um, I know that she's got a lot of points to defend and, you know, there, there are players in that chasing pack who... Um, you know, will hope that maybe that that added pressure that Shvantec didn't feel last season, you know, has a, you know pulls a weight on her. And I think we saw at the United Cup that there are you know crying, um, you know, I, I can't remember which which tie it was, but there is a little bit of a vulnerability there. And and yeah, she's you know she's fantastic and she's rightfully the world number one and she's streets ahead. But I think there's only there's only you know, to maintain that gap, I think, is going to be, for me, very, very impressive. It is a very big gap. And I certainly think it's almost like in, in Tour de France analogy, it's, you know, you've got Igor Schwiltek way out in front and the peloton 
And she's in the breakaway, is she? Yeah, she's in the breakaway and the peloton, the speed of the peloton by all being together just will, I think, naturally kind of catch up. So Ooh. it's going to be fascinating to see. Joel, but I, are I you still predicting think... a, a bunch sprint versus Ooh, the breakaway yeah, to the, see what will happen? At the finish at the WTA right finals the as well. <laughs> well, we, we shall see. I mean, we did have some doubles uh we've got some doubles matches as well to talk about surprise surprise chris krachikova and sinyakova they have defended their title in melbourne they beat the japanese duo of ayoyama and shibahara 6-4-6-3 i mean they're just on a they're just on a warpath at the moment aren't they uh, at each grand slam i just feel like they're always there or thereabouts and are just dominating the ladies doubles scene oh it's so impressive i think I was looking at some of the the stats for them and they did not play, I think, one Grand Slam last year, which was the French Open, whilst um, I think Krujikova was uh, kind of unable to unable to play that one. I think, did she test positive or something? Or was she injured? Yeah, I can't remember. I think maybe she she was defending, was she defending last year? And then she pull, pulled out injured from mm. her single so they didn't play the doubles or, or something mm. like that. But they... Um, of, of tournaments they've played in Grand Slams, they actually went 18-0 last year, winning three Grand Slams. So this is the fourth consecutive they played together, obviously apart from that French Open. Um, so I think that is uh, genuinely very impressive. I think it's great to see that they're able to kind of do it so consistently. Um, and they've also obviously gold medalists, as well as winning the tour, the tour ending finals and the Fed Cup. So they are probably going to go... Hall of Fame this year. Hall of Fame worthy. But I will say, do you know the last pairing to beat them in doubles at a Grand Slam? Who is it? It's obviously my favourite. Goatnet, Lynette and Bernarda Perra um, at the US Open in 2021. Yes. So Lynette, that is some a force trivia. to be reckoned with on the singles and on the doubles court. You had to get Goat Net in there this week. Yes, I know. I had to, I had the to final, the find final it. episode. Yeah, exactly. Had to find a way. And we also had Rinky, Hijikata and Jason Kubler. Another Australian Open wildcard pairing winning the men's doubles. They defeated Hugo Nice and Jan Zielinski in straight sets um, to capture their first Grand Slam title. Chris, what is it about Australian Open doubles wildcards because we had Kokinakis and Kyrgios last year now we've got Hiji Carter and and Kubler this year I don't know what it is I think there's something something in the water down there I think the vibe must be great because the support is obviously the thing that makes a difference for for these guys and I'm probably inspired by the story last year of Kyrgios and Kokinakis that if you're out there playing kind of tennis with one of your your best friends and enjoying it i think that's kind of underrated in doubles i think um obviously there's a lot of technical elements to it and you've got to make sure you're able to do all, all of those aspects of things but nothing beats great chemistry on court and it seems like the aussies have some fantastic chemistry with each other and really enjoy and relish the opportunity to play in front of a home crowd but i mean who saw this one coming i think it probably hasn't got the media attention it kind of would have got if it hadn't have happened last year for kokonakis and and kyrios but still i mean Super impressive. But what happened to all the top seeds this this tournament? I feel like they bowed out early. Unfortunate for Joe Salisbury. No Neil Skupski. Yeah, it was a very good win for them. We also had Alfie Hewitt, uh, Britain's Alfie Hewitt, win his first Melbourne singles title um, in the wheelchair singles against Takita Oda. So uh, very well done to him. And also 
a very well done to our collector set winner for the Australian Open 2023. We had four people get two correct picks, including Kim. And <laughs> did Kim win? No, she did not win the tiebreaker that we set, which was... Thank goodness. I know, we would have had the last of it. For us, Joel, we wouldn't have. (laughs) But our tiebreaker question was, how many games will the loser of the men's final win? And the correct answer was 15, which Laura Busby got spot on. So they they will be getting a Tennis Weekly mug sent to them. I mean, what a what a prize, what a way to start the year. Very impressive. I feel like that was a particularly difficult final to call in terms of would it be, you know, a Djokovic whitewash or would it be a Mm. five-setter? So well done to Laura. That is an impressive feat. Chris, we do need to decide this. Maybe we decide on a future episode, but we do have, thanks to Kim and Kim's dad, we have the slam, what what I'm tentatively tentatively calling the slam spoons of shame which is like the wooden spoon for like the the person who did the poorest. And we both got zero correct on on collector set. So I feel like we need a tiebreaker at some point to to settle settle it. I'm going to make a case here. Okay. I think that you should get the spoon of shame. And I know that I I sound like slightly biased in that, but (laughs) I did remember that for the preview of the year prior to draws being made, I did actually go for Sabalenka and Djokovic to win the AO. Oh, okay. So maybe I've got you slightly something there. You think that lets you off the hook? Uh, to be honest, I think maybe we should both take a spoon of shame and um, <laughs> and try try to get rid of it next time. Maybe we maybe we combine and we take options so that Kim yes, is we're Kim be versus us. Yes, exactly. Yes, let's maybe be, that's it. I'll accept let us my be spoon of shame. About it. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our Australian Open final round-by-round catch-up. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our coverage over the last couple of weeks. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up-to-date on all the action to come from the ATP and WTA Tours. Tennis never sleeps, and I think we're in Leon and Hua Hin from tomorrow on the WTA Tours. Um, We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you'd like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Tennis Weekly Pod. And you can email the show at tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out our website at tennisweekly.co.uk. And we are going to be back soon at Tennis Weekly HQ. We're going to have a little bit of a rest now (laughs) after uh, these couple of weeks. But uh, I hope you can join us down the road for another episode from Tennis Weekly HQ. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.